This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au we are, I am really excited because we're kicking off our Sermon on the Mount series this morning. It is called The Manifesto and um, we, we are going to spend the next 11 weeks here and, uh, and I'm really, really pumped and excited. But as far as famous speeches go, there have been some fairly significant and famous speeches in the history, the recorded history of humanity at least, that have had an impact and a significant impact and changed our world. In fact, I've got a book that I bought many years ago called Speeches That Changed the World. Um, and it had a little you know, CD in there that you could, you could listen to some of them because they've, they've even been recorded. And I loved reading some of the stories there and personally being inspired by them and hoping that one day I could preach a sermon that would change the world. But so, some of the most significant ones, if you think about the ones that we resonate with as a culture... Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech, you know, I have a dream where one day our children will not grow up in a country where they're judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their hearts. But my personal favorite would be Nelson Mandela's speech when he was released from his unjust sentence in prison in 1991. And he stood before the South African people, my, my homeland, my people, and he said these words, I have cherished the ideal of a free and democratic society where all persons would live together in harmony with equal opportunity. It is an ideal for which I live for and hope to achieve, but if needs be, an ideal for which I am prepared to die. And three years later, Nelson Mandela was voted in as the president of South Africa, the first time it's experienced democracy. And he literally changed that nation. Speeches that changed the world. In that book, the first speech that is mentioned is the speech of Moses on Mount Sinai as he came down from the mountain and delivered the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel. And the second speech in that book, Speeches That Changed the World, is the speech that Jesus gave, the Sermon on the Mount. It is the greatest speech, the greatest sermon ever preached on the face of this planet. The echoes of this discourse, uh, this, this dialogue ha- have still been heard throughout millennia. The ripples of its effect are still being felt today in 2018 in Sydney. It is the most famous speech ever given. And we're going to slowly unpack the elements of that speech over the next 11 weeks as we dig into the Sermon on the Mount. We've called this series The Manifesto. I think it's there behind me. The Manifesto. A a manifesto is a, a declaration of aims or of policies or of ideals that a person might give. And there are plenty of famous manifestos in history. You think of Karl Marx's A Communist Manifesto or perhaps even more twisted Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf, which is a, a manifesto of sorts as well. But this manifesto that Jesus offers us here is very different from any other manifesto we have ever seen. It is a manifesto of the kingdom of God, a way of living under the rule and reign of Jesus. 
It's really a new way to be human, a new, a new way of human flourishing, of living. And it's beautiful, and it's unique, and it's profound, and it's deep, and it's going to bless us. And my prayer and hope is that it will change us as a church. But a couple of things we need to know about the Sermon on the Mount before we dig into the text. The first is that the Sermon on the Mount was actually preached by Jesus, probably on the side of a mountain, on a perhaps a, a, a level plain on the side of a mountain just above Tagbar, on the outside of Capernaum, overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And we believe that we know the, the place, or at least we're close to the place where it was actually preached, and people can go there today. You can go and visit it and, and look out and imagine what it was like to stand there as Jesus preached this sermon. And it's not hard to miss the parallels here in the beginning of Matthew chapter 5 between Moses and Jesus. I mean, even as we think about those two characters in the Bible, both of them had significant threats on their life as young children. Both of them were raised in Egypt. Both of them ascended a mountain to receive the revelation of God. Moses went up to Mount Sinai, received the Ten Commandments and came down and delivered them to God's people. Jesus ascends the mountain and he doesn't just receive the law of God. He receives a new law. He doesn't just reiterate the Ten Commandments. In fact, he lives the Ten Commandments out and goes a whole nother level deeper, pursuing the heart. He is Jesus. That is, he is the better Moses, the fulfillment of the promise of God who would send one like Moses, but better than and so this moment here that we see in Matthew chapter 5, in fact, is a significant turning in salvation history. This is the moment where we see the kingdom of God begin to appear. Jesus says, it is at hand, it is present, it has come. And like Moses, he delivers this new way of living, this new grace law, this new manifesto for the people of God. And what we receive here in Matthew 5 to 7 and in Luke's version of the Sermon on the Plain is not a verbatim sermon from Jesus word for word, but perhaps a summary or a, um, a, a dissolved version of what Jesus initially preached to these people. But it is a sermon nonetheless. And so what is this sermon about? How do we understand it? And it's crucial for us to understand this sermon in light of the kingdom of God. If you come back to Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, there is this summary verse of Jesus' ministry. This is what it says. And Jesus went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. What did Jesus do? What, this summary verse of his ministry, he does three, two things. He declares the kingdom of God. He says, the kingdom of God is hand, therefore repent and belief. He declares the kingdom. But he, not, he doesn't just declare it, he also demonstrates the kingdom because he walks around dragging a little trail of heaven behind him and healing diseases and casting out demons and, um, and opening blind eyes and allowing the mute to speak. And so he both declares the kingdom and he demonstrates the kingdom. And then in, sandwiched in between that is the Sermon on the Mount. And what this is, is the new way of the kingdom. 
And so it's crucial for us to understand the Sermon on the Mount and particularly the blessings, the Beatitudes in the context of Jesus' ministry about the kingdom of God. It's a new kingdom manifesto. And what Jesus will give us is a picture of the repentance and righteousness that he is looking for amongst his people. So that's the first thing. We need to understand it in the context of Jesus' ministry, in the context of the kingdom of God. The second is we need to understand this as an inward-out teaching. It's an inward-out kind of sermon. Many have focused on the outward aspects of Jesus' sermon, on the, the ethics that he gives us in this sermon. Things like divorce, things like giving, things like how to treat your neighbor, things like keeping your word, your integrity. People have often focused on the external ethics, but what Jesus is actually interested in is not so much the externals, but the heart. He is relentlessly pursuing the heart, and so he will take an external measure like murder, and he will drive to the heart and say, it's not just about murder, it's about the anger that exists in your heart. It's not just about adultery, it's about the lust that exists in your heart. It's not just about spruiking your giving or praying really loudly, it's about doing that to your father who sees what you do in secret. And so it's kind of this outward in sermon because yes, there's this focus on the way we live our lives, but what Jesus is really interested in is the heart. It's an outward in sermon. The second is it's an upside down sermon. It seems completely contrary to the way of this world. See, this kingdom manifesto really is about God creating a distinct, holy, countercultural people. So much of what Jesus will say in the Sermon on the Mount is completely back to front and upside down from how our culture, how our world thinks. Love your enemies, turn the other cheek. Store up treasures in heaven and be generous now. Those things are ludicrous to our world. This is an upside down sermon. And Jesus desires a people who would be holy. That was the original intent of the law. When God gave the law to his people Israel, it wasn't that he would just give them a bunch of instructions for the sake of it. It's that he wanted his people to be distinct and different and holy from all the other nations around them. And as Jesus comes and delivers this new law of grace, it's the same purpose. He wants his people to be distinct and holy and countercultural. Bonhoeffer calls the Sermon on the Mount. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is the the German priest, uh, he's got a little book called The Cost of Discipleship on the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to read it, it's brilliant. He calls the Sermon on the Mount of the extraordinariness of the people of God. These, These things are extraordinary, so extraordinary that they're outside of the category of thinking of normal, of real, of reasonable for our world. They are upside down types of teachings. And the expectation is that we would be different. And different in two ways. The expectation is, as Jesus unpacks this teaching, the first is that we would be different from the religious people that Jesus outlines. So he talks about fasting and praying and giving so that people would see you and praise you. He he nails self-righteous hypocrisy. He says the people of God aren't like that. We're not 
We're not self-righteous. We're not doing this for the audience of the people who are watching us, for their glory. This is about God. So he, he calls us to be different from the religious. But he also calls us to be different from the culture. He will give us instructions about what lust and divorce and adultery and generosity look like. And they are vastly different from the world that we live in. So this is upside down on two different levels. And that means we often find ourselves in a space that is weird. And, we don't know what to, and people don't know what to do about us because of the way we live. And that's exactly what Jesus wants. This is an upside down manifesto. And thirdly, this is a rebelliously authoritative teaching. It's rebelliously authoritative. The method of teaching in the first century for a a, a rabbi would be to take a seat, to sit down, and to begin to teach. And as they sat, they would say things like, so-and-so says this, this teacher says this, quote this person, quote this person, quote that person. Now, Jesus sat as he taught the Sermon on the Mount, but he did something very different from what the people expected. He said, and you'll pick this up as you read it, he says, I tell you the truth, or truly, truly, I say to you. See, Jesus didn't quote anyone. Jesus didn't stand on what the the rabbis in the past had taught. He taught as one who had authority. He taught as the very mouthpiece of God, bringing the word of God to the people of God, much like Moses. In fact, so profound was this preaching that Jesus gave. When we get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew makes this little editorial comment about the crowd's response. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, it says this. And when Jesus finished saying these things, The crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is a rebelliously authoritative teaching. You cannot miss that Jesus is claiming to be the prophet, the final prophet, the one who would come in the line of Moses and who would declare God's revelation to his people for a new covenant. So what kind of sermon is this? It's an inward, outward, in, upside down, rebelliously authoritative sermon. But it's also the most well-known sermon ever. The Sermon on the Mount and portions of the Sermon on the Mount are the most significant religious discourse in human history, bar none. People on either side of the fence of faith have been fascinated, have studied this religious discourse. People like the communist Karl Marx said that he was shaped in his thinking about about life from the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, Gandhi said that he loved the Sermon on the Mount. He loved it and in fact he said that it had a profound significance on the way he lived his life. It is the most famous sermon, the most well-known sermon ever preached. Parts of the Sermon on the Mount are still in our common vernacular today. Words like turn the other cheek, contrast like the plank speck, things like um, the golden rule. They're all, they're all common things. We see them in TV, we see them in the media, we, we hear that spoken 
more than 2,000 years after Jesus delivered this sermon, in Sydney in 2018, people are taking these words and using them. You know, I had a guy who's he's not a believer. He came up to me a, a couple of months ago and he just quoted me Matthew 7 verse 1. Judge not lest ye be judged. It was like a really random. Why is it always in the King James? Why do they quote, the, it's, you know, maybe Catholic school, whatever it was for him. People know. They're not even believers, but they know the Sermon on the Mount. They've heard the words of Jesus for 2,000 plus years. This famous sermon has been echoing through cultures across the world. It's the most famous sermon ever preached. It's also the most relevant sermon ever preached. It's every preacher's dream that their sermon would be hard-hitting and relevant. It would be a here-and-now sermon and not just a there-and-then sermon. But Jesus' sermon is profoundly relevant. And it's not just because Jesus is preaching it, right? The sermon is relevant because of what he says. It's so real. It's so ordinary. It's so everyday. He will address things like marriage and anger and revenge and neighbors and money and honesty, integrity. All of those things are relevant to almost every person who lives on the face of the planet, irrespective of their faith and worldview. 2,000 years later, people still find what Jesus says here relevant to their lives. So it's the most well-known sermon ever. It's the most relevant sermon ever. And it's also the most convicting sermon ever preached. Partly because Jesus preached it. I want to suggest to you that it's impossible to hear these words and not be challenged and convicted about the way you live your life. Completely cut to the heart at times. Don Carson, a famous theologian, as I was reading his little intro to the Sermon on the Mount, said that he is both drawn to and shamed by the Sermon on the Mount. Like a moth that is drawn to a very bright light but then is seared by the heat of it. There is something about this sermon that convicts us deeply. Because we've been created by a God who believes that this is the way we ought to live. This was his original intended design for us under his reign and rule and kingdom. And so there is something that resonates deeply with people as we read these words. But some have suggested that since the standards that Jesus has in the Sermon on the Mount are so high, that he didn't really actually intend these to be lived out. They've suggested that perhaps the Sermon on the Mount is actually just an impractical idealism. A dream that would never really come true. Or perhaps some have wrestled with this so much that they've felt that the Sermon on the Mount is actually just reserved for a a special class of Christians, super Christians, perhaps leaders or pastors or nuns or monks or whatever. Like Just the super Christians will live this out, but the rest of us won't. Some have even suggested that because these are such high, lofty ideals, that, that this is what we will live like when Jesus returns. This is what it will be like in the age to come. But the reality is God's people have always been good at dodging and ducking and avoiding his commands. And just because we find something convicting, just because Jesus gives us a high ideal doesn't mean that it's not for us. These words are for us. 
It is the most convicting sermon ever preached. It's the most well-known sermon. It's the most relevant sermon. It's the most convicting sermon. But sadly, it's the least lived. It's the least lived sermon ever preached. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' crowning work. It's kind of like his theology boiled down into three chapters in Matthew. And the sad reality is that many of, his pre- many of his followers don't even live according to this preaching. You know, Gandhi, the famous uh, spiritual guru, Mahatma Gandhi, said, despite the significant influence of the Sermon on the Mount on his life, he never converted from Hinduism to Christianity. And the reason that he states is because of the hypocrisy that he saw in the lives of believers. He says this, If Christians in India really followed Jesus, Hinduism would cease to exist in that country. Wow. I can't help but think the same would be true of us in Sydney. If we actually lived this out, the unholy trinity of atheism, agnosticism and apathy would cease exist that that quote from Gandhi is both devastating but it's also a pretty good motivation and challenge for us is it not imagine what it would be like for a city to encounter Christians who live this out I promise you our city would not recover so this is a bit of a crazy task to preach a sermon On a sermon. It's a bit like Inception, right? A dream within a dream. This is a sermon about a sermon. And I guess, you know, if you're preaching through the book of Hebrews, you'd be doing the same thing because that also is a long sermon. But this is a sermon about a sermon. And it's never going to be as good as Jesus originally preached it. And so we need, I need God's Spirit to help me, and you need God's Spirit to hear and receive as He takes this and applies it to our hearts. And so I'm going to pray for us. We're going to dive into the Sermon on the Mount and look at the Beatitudes. So if you've got a Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. And this is what it says. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up onto the mountain, and when he had sat down, his disciples came to him. The the sermon is given in the context of this is for the disciples, but Jesus is very aware that there is a very large crowd of people who gather around and are eavesdropping on his teaching for his people. And when he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those 
who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For, though they perse- for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. God, we pray that as we embark on a journey to unpack the greatest sermon that has ever been preached, the most profound words to roll off the lips of a human, God, we ask that you would give us a willingness to submit and surrender our lives in every area. And God, we know that there are particular parts of this sermon that are going to challenge us in different ways. And I pray, God, with a sense of expectancy that you would work in such a profound way over the next 11 weeks that as this manifesto is delivered from our King Jesus, that we would learn to live by the power of your Holy Spirit and in grace-fueled effort to be the countercultural people that you call us to be. God, we need you. Speak to us now, we pray. And God's people said, Amen. You know, every good sermon starts with a story, doesn't it? Something that kind of hooks you in. If you're, you know, a really great orator today, maybe it's a really funny story. You get people laughing. Perhaps you tell them a bit of a story about yourself so they can identify with you. Or, or maybe you, you start with something that's going to grip their attention. You ask a really fascinating question that your sermon will seek to answer. Well, Jesus' sermon doesn't begin with any of those things. He begins with a blessing. He actually begins with eight blessings. They're called the Beatitudes, the blessings. Not eight different types of people, but eight characteristics that are true of every disciple and follower of Jesus. These are not a list of moral commands, even though Jesus expects us to live them out. These are not a set of instructions of how to enter into the kingdom of God. These are not an exhaustive list. There are many other blessings that Jesus will give. You can read them in his, the accounts of his life in the Gospels. These are not universal blessings. These are blessings for people who fall under the reign of Jesus and have entered into his kingdom by faith. Rather, these are Jesus' answer to the question of human happiness. What does it mean to be happy? What does it mean to be blessed? What does it mean to flourish? These are, as one author, Scott McKnight, says, a radical revisioning for the people of God. A radical revisioning for the people of God. Now that term there, beatitude, is a Latin transliteration of the word blessed or blessing. Not blessed, just so you know. It's not the King James. This is 2018. Blessed. Blessed. Ah, that didn't go down so well, did it? Sorry, if you're offended. You can say blessed if you want. I'll just judge you. It's a difficult word to translate. And you'll notice if you look through the different translations, people offer all sorts of suggestions. Happy are, fortunate are, blessed are. 
It's a, kind of, it's a term of congratulations that you would give to someone who is thriving in life, whose circumstances you would find enviable. And so blessed is close, happier close. Some have suggested flourishing is a good word. But my, I, I reckon we should, you could say killing it, killing it. Or perhaps, you know, you're a baller, you've made it. But whatever, whatever it is, blessed is good enough. Blessed, blessed are. And I want you to notice the upside, upside down nature of these blessings. As you read through this list, you think, this, this feels a bit back to front at times. You would naturally think that the opposite would be true. Blessed are the religious. Blessed are those who are always happy. Blessed are the assertive. Blessed are those who have the good life. Blessed are those who are free from suffering. These blessings seem so counterintuitive to us that even as God's people, they can grate our ears. But the kingdom of God is subversive and it throws the world's values upside down. Blessed. You'll also notice that some of these blessings are presented in a future sense and some are presented in a present sense. And so blessing one and blessing eight are present and blessing two to seven are future blessings. Now that's not to say you've got to wait for the blessings from two till seven and one and eight are not yours after you've received them, what this demonstrates to us and what we see about the kingdom of God is that the kingdom of God is both a now and a not yet reality. That the kingdom of God has come. Jesus says it's at hand. But yet we know that the kingdom of God is not quite consummated and fulfilled. There is a reality that lies ahead. And the same is true for all of these blessings. That they are now blessings. We get to have a foretaste of them. But the reality of them, the fulfillment of them, the consummation of these blessings lie entirely in the future as Jesus returns and ushers in his kingdom for the final time and takes his seat on the throne and rules and reigns for all to see. And so these blessings are both now, they're present, but they're also future, they're not yet. And so blessed, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The spiritually poor there are not the materially poor, those who lack you know, a good credit card and a healthy bank account and a share portfolio. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about the physically poor. He's not talking about the psychologically poor. He is talking about the spiritually poor, the spiritual bankrupt, or as some have said, the spiritual nuns, the spiritual zeros. Not the spiritual giants, not the spiritual heroes, not the religious gurus as we would expect. Blessed, rather, are the poor in spirit. Those who recognize they've got nothing. And there's a bit of a logical progression to the next one. For those who recognize that they are spiritually bankrupt, mourn over that. Blessed are those who mourn. It seems that Jesus has in mind Isaiah 63, 1 and 2 as he issues these first two blessings. Because this is what the prophet Isaiah says. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. 
Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and down at the end of verse 2, to comfort all who mourn. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Not because they're poor in spirit. Not because they mourn. But because of the blessings that come. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They will be comforted. That word for could be translated because. Blessed are they because. The state of spiritual poverty is not one to be... um, or mourning is, is not one to necessarily be emulated, but it's because they, they are part of the kingdom of God, because they have confessed their emptiness, that the blessing comes. They will receive, inherit the kingdom. Blessed. The kingdom of God is not for those who bring their CV of spiritual accomplishments to God. Rather, it's those who come with empty hands and grieving over their sin. And that's what makes Christianity unique. This is so countercultural to every other faith and worldview, which is built on reward for effort. Rather blessed are those who have empty hands and a broken heart over their sin. Thirdly, blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. Jesus here is quoting Psalm 37 verse 10 where it says, In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Meek. Blessed are the meek. What the heck does that mean? Meekness. You know, the word when it's translated of an animal can mean that that animal has been tamed, that there is a a wildness that has been brought under restraint. And so a meek person is one who perhaps responds to the circumstances of the wicked injustice that occurs, not in a way of lashing out, but in a way of trusting that circumstances and themselves to a God who is good and has a plan. Blessed are the meek. You know, this week um, at the 829 conference, I got to meet a bunch of new church planters. It's incredible how many churches are being planted across Australia. And I met this guy, Will, and we got chatting over dinner and hung out for a bit. Really great guy. And the next day, he came up to me and he said, Man, I, I just really enjoyed hanging out with you last night. It's really good to meet you and your wife. And I just really, really enjoyed hanging out with you. I was just really struck, man. You're really meek. And I was like, in that moment, I was like, I don't know whether to be offended or whether to take that as a compliment. And I was kind of like, thanks, I guess. Why do we wrestle with that? Why, why can't I receive that as a compliment? Because in our world, meekness is not a virtue. In fact, our world says, if you're meek, you're timid, you're a coward, and you're weak. But that is not what Jesus means when he says, blessed are the meek. In fact, This type of Christian meekness or this distorted view of meekness is what Hitler objected to about Christians. And he says this. I'm tempted to try and read this in a German accent, but I won't. It has been our misfortune to have the wrong religion. That is the Lutheran religion, the Protestant religion. 
Why didn't we have the religion of the Japanese who regards sacrifice for the fatherland as the highest good? The Mohammedan religion too would have been much more compatible to us than Christianity with its meekness and flabbiness. That's not what Jesus means when he says, blessed are the meek. Jesus' kingdom is very different. It rebels against the status quo, the power hungry that seek to dominate and control and rather entrust itself to God and doesn't lash out. Blessed, in fact, are the meek. The fourth blessing, verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This is a, a spiritual longing, a yearning after God. Blessed are those who thirst and hunger for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. God will not leave you dry and hungry spiritually if you are in the kingdom. Reminiscent of the conversation that Jesus has with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Talks about a, a deep spiritual thirst that she is looking for and says, I'll give it to you. Reminiscent of what Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Those who eat will never go hungry again. Blessed are those who thirst and hunger for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. The first four blessings there have to do with our relationship with God. But the next four blessings have to do with our relationship with others. Blessings 5 to 7 in verse 6. Blessed are the merciful. For they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Again, this isn't a to-do list. If you show mercy, therefore God will give you mercy and allow you into the kingdom of God. We show mercy precisely because we have received mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. That's an echo of Psalm 24 verse 4. The sincere those who have not lifted up their soul to what is false or who have sworn deceitfully in their dealings with other people. Blessed are the pure in heart. The people of God, the blessed ones, are peacemakers. They're like our king, the prince of peace. The one who came with a ministry of reconciliation to reconcile us back to God. Blessed are the peacemakers. It's not how the world operates, is it? The manifesto of our world is blessed are the ruthless because they will get ahead. Blessed are the sneaky because they will get away with it. Blessed are the agitators because they will get their way. This is a counter-cultural revolution that Jesus is unloading. Blessed. Blessing number eight, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Really? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you. Fortunate are you. Killing it are you. When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And my sense is that this blessing is going to become really real for the people of God in the coming years, particularly for those in the Western church who have not had to live this reality. Blessed. Blessed are those who are persecuted. 
And the question for us will be, will we choose to believe that blessing? Or will we receive the rejection of our culture as so crushing that to us, persecution seems like the opposite of blessing, like a curse? No, no, blessed are the persecuted. They will be rewarded. Great is their reward in heaven. Think of what Paul says in Colossians 1.24 as he writes to the people. He said, now I rejoice. I'm overjoyed. In what? In my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the church. Blessed are the persecuted. These blessings are entirely countercultural. This is a complete reversal of the world's orders, and it is precisely what it looks like in the kingdom of God. And we just think of all the things that Jesus said about his kingdom. The first shall be last. That's backwards. The greatest of all is the servant of all. The rich are sent away empty-handed, and the poor are welcomed in. He says the humble are exalted and the proud are brought down. He says the one who lays down his life will save it, and the one who seeks to save his life will lose it. That is entirely countercultural, and that is Jesus' kingdom, because that is the way that he lived himself. There is nothing more upside down and back to front and countercultural than the gospel. The creator enters into creation. The timeless and eternal one is born into time and space. The one who owned the heavens, who sat on the throne of God, is born into abject poverty. The one who is worshipped for all eternity by the hosts of heaven walks the face of the earth and is ignored and overlooked They did not recognize him. The eternal Alpha and Omega dies a criminal's death on a cross. There is nothing more back to front than the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And we're a part of that kingdom if we have faith, if we trust in our king. We're a part of it by repentance, by pursuing the righteousness that he requires. And because we're a part of it, it means that we're blessed. You're blessed. You're killing it. You're fortunate. You are flourishing. And so if you find yourself in these circumstances, remember, you are blessed. This is an entirely different way of viewing life. And we are called to be distinct people. And that's exactly what Jesus will move to with his next two metaphors in Matthew 5, 13 to 15. The metaphor of salt, the metaphor of light, is what it looks like to be the countercultural people of God in a world that watches. And so if you're here this morning and you're thinking, I don't really feel like I'm killing it. I don't really feel like I'm blessed. Perhaps the reality is you're living by the wrong manifesto. Perhaps the manifesto you're seeking to live by is the one that the world has offered you. And I promise you, 
that manifesto does not offer blessing. It offers curse. But this manifesto truly offers us the only way to be human, to be who God has originally intended us to be, to be his people, to live under the rule and reign of Jesus as his distinct and holy people. Jesus has called us into a better way. And you, Christian, are blessed. Blessed, fortunate, flourishing. Because we live in his kingdom. We're going to respond to that king. And we're going to respond in a profoundly countercultural way. By doing something that our culture thinks is weird and different. And perhaps you're not a believer here this morning. You're like, yep, this, this is weird that you guys sing and lift your hands and praise God and eat this meal with... That's countercultural. It's different. We're God's people. We celebrate a meal. We celebrate a man who was stripped naked and hung on a cross to die in our place. This meal, this Lord's Supper, is for those of you who love Jesus. And so I invite you to come and identify with our King. Dip the bread into the grape juice. Eat it remembering that Jesus is your Lord, that he is your king, that you identify with him in this countercultural kingdom. And we're going to praise our God. We're going to sing because there is nothing more appropriate than joy for these people, the poor in spirit, the mourners, the persecuted. We sing because we recognize the heavenly reality behind those states, that we indeed are blessed. But finally, our prayer team is up the back. And if you have any need this morning that you would like prayer for, you can head to them. They would pray for you. They've got an orange lanyard around their neck. Maybe you even want to take a step into this kingdom today and receive the blessing of Jesus. Then head to them. They will explain to you what you need to do, pray for you, that you might repent and live in this new way that Jesus calls us to live. But for now, we're going to pray together and respond and worship this great King. So I invite you to pray with me. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for the good news of a Savior who left the throne of heaven to die in our place for our sin. And Father, we want to be the types of people who live in this kingdom reality. Not as a way of earning, but because you have called us into an entirely different countercultural reality. Help us see ourselves as we truly are blessed, fortunate, happy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.